Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Man, a leak is terrible. Those, uh, those videos, those are the stuff of nightmares for me. Um, I, I'm, I'm generally not afraid to tackle like minor repairs, little maintenance projects, but plumbing and leaks, that's something I am absolutely terrified to touch. Um, in my mind, I picture scenarios like these unfolding if I ever even attempted to do anything remotely close to plumbing or fixing a leak. And, and um, uh, again, it, it's like you fix, if you don't do it right, it costs more what you did wrong to fix it. I, it's just terrible for me to think about. I remember several years ago, we were at my mother and father-in-law's house and, and they were having some sort of plumbing problem. I don't know exactly what it was, but I remember the water shut off, was under their house, in the crawl space, uh, and it was on the opposite side of the house from the access door. And again, crawl spaces, there's certain places you don't go, and crawl spaces are one of them. I have tremendous respect for people who work in crawl spaces. I don't go in crawl spaces. As a matter of fact, that's why you have children. Um, <laughs> because you can send children into those places to take care of those things that you would absolutely rather not take care of. And so in this situation, I'm not going under there. My father-in-law wasn't going under there. So send the kid into the crawl space to, to turn the water off. And again, send the kid in there. It's an adventure. He's thrilled to be able to go on the adventure and see all the terrible things that live under there. And I don't have to go under there. It's a win for everybody. So Gabe goes in, my oldest, he's under the floor, he's going under there to shut the water off, he, he disappears into the darkness of the crawl space, he's in the back corner, and he kind of vanishes back there for a minute, and then the sound. I'm sure that did great things for the audio just now. He goes in, and right where he turns the water off, I imagine that valve had not been turned in a very, 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 very long time, and the water line, the water main broke off at the foundation, and water went everywhere. It probably looked like that guy in the video, if I had to guess, uh, getting a face full of water. And what went, again, this is why I don't do it. What went from a really simple repair inside the house became a plumbing nightmare. Somebody had to come out to fix it. The water had to be shut off at the road. Again, it's just, it's terrible. I don't want to touch those things. And I'll tell you, it's not plumbing related, but it is leak related. We were so close, trustees will tell you, we were so close to having a major problem in this room. If you paid attention, the roof got redone in the last few weeks. And when the roofers peeled this roof off, they had to replace over almost a thousand square feet of decking that had rotted underneath the roofing. And so we were, uh, again, how in the world we didn't have water coming through, only the Lord knows it's a mystery. Uh, God's hand was on us and spared us a, a nightmare. But, uh, but again, I just think about how close we were here, and we managed to avoid it by the grace of God. Today, our journey into Jeremiah asks us to think about leaks. Uh, again, maybe not in the way we've talked about today, but it asks us to consider leaks. And, and what we're going to find is that a leak is a metaphor for a greater problem that is very much worth our consideration today. Chapter 2 of Jeremiah is kind of a summary statement for the entire book. It, it's almost the tone of an attorney's opening statement where God is making his appeal. He's laying out the case against Israel for what they have done. And if you were to circle a key verse, again, I would ask you to just circle verse 5 of chapter 2 where God says, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? 
As I said last week, we are very prone to condemn Israel for their faithlessness. We're quick to point out their mistakes and all the things that they did wrong, but the reality is that if we're honest, we're just as prone to make those similar mistakes as the nation of Israel. While Israel pursued idols that resembled the gods of the Canaanites, our idolatry takes a different shape. We might say it's a more sophisticated shape. But the truth of the matter is, is we are just as proficient as idolatry as any of the ancient peoples were. John Calvin said this, he said, The human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. It substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The mind in this way conceives the idol, and the hands give it birth. This morning, I want us to continue walking through this indictment of God's people and continue to see how Jeremiah's warnings are very applicable to us as well. Jeremiah is certainly an ancient work, but his warnings are not lost on us today. So hopefully you've got your Bibles open to Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll be reading from there this morning. If you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word from Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning there in verse 9. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care, and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory." For that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Father, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful, Father, for the honesty with which it speaks, for the challenge that it sets before us. Father, we acknowledge today that, that we come up short so many times, and so help us to not write these words off as ancient and irrelevant, but see just how important they are for us today. Bless us as we consider our own cisterns that don't hold water today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. If you've ever been to a developing nation and wandered outside the touristy areas, then you've probably seen a, a cistern. Not a brethren and a cistern, but a cistern. You, you've probably seen one. In the touristy areas, they try to make it look clean and American so that you feel good about being there. But in the less than touristy areas, well, they, they let things go a little bit, and, and it's a little more natural. A cistern is helpful in an area where, where digging wells is a challenge and where there's an abundance of rainfall. It's just a large tank that's designed for, for catching rainwater. Not like our rain barrels that, that you know, bougie gardeners put at the, end of their, at the end of their gutters so they've got water to water their tomato plants with. Not that. This is just a big open tank that's designed to catch water as it falls from the sky. And a lot of times they elevate it so that you get water pressure. Uh, so that water flows downhill. And so that water, that helps to pressurize the lines. One time we were on a mission trip to Jamaica and we were helping this church and looked outside the window and the church had a, had a cistern and it was doing its job. It was capturing rainwater and lots of other stuff as well. I'll just say this. It wasn't the cleanest water in the country, but 
flushing the inside toilet with water from a cistern beats an outhouse over a pit 10 out of 10 times. Guaranteed. Jeremiah uses the image of a cistern. And while the image may be less significant to us today, you can be assured that Jeremiah's audience understood exactly the significance of what he was talking about. And as we get into this passage this morning, there's something that stands out right away, and I think it's important for us to not lose sight of this as we engage in this. The Lord wins every single argument. Just understand that. You don't win arguments against God. God wins every single argument. If you've got kids... You understand something about arguments. You, if you were a child once, you were a great argument, arguer. But if you got kids, you understand something about arguments. When kids are little, the arguments are often cut and dry. I was listening yesterday to a couple of children at our upward field. They were arguing over the ownership of a soccer ball. And that's what they argue about. I mean, you've heard the toddler logic, what's yours is mine, what's mine is mine, what's his is mine, what I see is mine, what I dream is mine. That's how toddlers approach life. But these two children were arguing about the ownership of a soccer ball, and, and parents had to step in and help settle the argument. But as children get older, they hone their craft. They become even more proficient at the argument. And some actually believe that they actually possess a superpower in argumentation. I, yesterday, I almost got sucked into an argument with my kid. He asked me my preference about something. I'm getting choked up. He asked me my preference about something. And when you ask me my preference about something, I'm going to reply with my preference, also known as an opinion, okay? It's highly subjective. It may not agree with your preference or your opinion because yours is highly subjective too. And so I gave him my preference about something and then he proceeded to argue with me about why my preference was wrong. <laughs> it's my preference. By the nature of what it is, my preferences can't be wrong. It's not like he, argue, he asked me my opinion about abortion. Like, my opinion is right when it comes to that. I'll own that. He didn't ask me my opinion about something that's factual. He asked me my opinion about something that's subjective. You want to argue? You can't argue about my preference. When the Lord presents his case, there is no rejecting his claims. That he's not making a case that's subjective. He's making a case that is objective and true. And the potent point here that's, be, that's being made in these first couple of verses is something we should not overlook. If you remember the story from 1 Samuel, again, going back further in the Old Testament, Samuel was old. The people came to Samuel and they said, Samuel, we want a king. We want a king. If you remember why they wanted a king, it wasn't because they were looking for just rule and they were looking for, for that level of authority. They weren't looking for someone to submit to. When they came to Samuel asking for a king, they wanted a king because everybody else has got one. All the other nations have got a king. He says, it says that we, we want to be like all the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like everybody else who has a king. We don't have a king. We want to have a king like everybody else. And so here in Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord is indicting the nation because of their sins against him. And there is this incredibly powerful argument that he brings to the table. He says here in, in chapter 2, he says, look at the nations. Again, don't miss that. Because they've already made the argument. They rejected his kingship and said, we want to be like all the other nations. And now the Lord looks at him and says, look at all the other nations. Remember the ones you want to be just like? Look at all the other nations. He says, has a nation ever changed its gods? 
You want to be like all the other nations? Well, look at this. None of the other nations have changed their gods. If you're so eager to look like the other nations, then why are you abandoning their example in this matter? The other nations don't do what you're doing. The other nations don't change their gods. The Egyptians haven't stopped bowing down to Horus or Isis or Osiris. They're still worshiping their gods. The other nations aren't doing what you're doing. This doesn't even make sense. He says, my people are abandoning their glory for something that's not in their best interest. Not only are they abandoning the Lord, they're going after fake gods that, that can't help them, can't redeem them, can't provide for them, can't protect them. Again, God has shown in history his care for Israel, his provision for Israel, his protection for Israel. He's gone and fought their battles for them. He's done incredible things for them. And they're rejecting God's care and provision and protection for things that don't exist, that can't do those things. The Lord would later tell the people in chapter 29, a verse we're all very familiar with. He says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord's plan for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God knows their future. God knew the hope that was waiting for them. Why would they abandon all of that for a, a false God that can't do anything? Instead of the great things, they were interested in far lesser things. Instead of following the Lord, these people turned their own way abandoning their protector, provider, sustainer, the one true God. This nation had the maker of the stars watching over its citizens. Israel was in a covenant with the one who fixed the planets in their orbits. But Yahweh the Lord said that the pagans in Cyprus and Kedar have greater loyalty to their idols than Israel has to the one true God. This is one of these places where we can bring some application away from the nation of Israel and look at our own problems, particularly political problems today. Because today we hear all these arguments about, people argue about the faith of our founders in this country. They, they, they worry about, they argue about, you know, who was a Christian, who was not a Christian. But the words of our founders speak louder than our contemporary arguments. John Adams said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other you know, at no other time, or no time has our nation ever declared Jesus to be king. We put in God we trust on things, but I think we know that we don't acknowledge that as a, as a people, as a whole. It's a slogan. It's a motto. It's not something that we have, we have really embraced as a people. We've not declared Jesus to be king. We live in a land that was certainly founded on a certain set of values and principles that are inseparable from Judeo-Christian principles. But today we live in a time where we drift further and further away from those principles. And guess what? As we drift further away from those principles and how we see the world, it becomes very difficult to function as our founders have envisioned. The last 75 years, we've watched those values and principles erode before us, and look how well that's done for us. But we need to understand something. A nation is only the sum of her citizens. A nation cannot turn from God. A nation cannot repent. And so the fate of a nation is determined by the billions and trillions of individual choices that are made by her people. A nation turns from God, not because the government passes a law, but a nation turns from God because her people do. Likewise, a nation repents, not because the king or the president or the rulers repent. A nation repents because her people repent. And as the church today, we're assumed to be a remnant of righteousness in the midst of a godless society. We need to make sure that we're leading the way of repentance. 
not giving the dead idols of our world a place of reverence in our lives. To further illustrate this point, the, the Lord uses an incredibly poignant illustration that the people would understand perfectly. He says, be appalled, O heavens, in verse 12. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. In order to recognize and understand that, I think we have to understand the importance and significance of water in the Bible. I think we're learning to appreciate the importance of water today as this drought continues. Many of us have seen helicopters having to get water from, from lakes and rivers to be able to fight the fire up on the mountain. We've seen how water is not available in its normal ways and its normal capacities. And honestly, we walk outside and it sort of feels like we're, we're living in a tinderbox. You see burnt places on the side of the road where somebody's engine got too hot or a tow chain started a fire on the side of the road. We see that and, and so we recognize the importance of water. We're appreciating it more and more. But even in the middle of a drought, there haven't been many times in our lives where we've had to worry about getting a glass of water. You go to the faucet, you want a glass of water, and you got all you want, as long as you paid the bill. I had a teacher once who hosted a foreign exchange student from a developing country, and that teacher asked the student what was the strangest thing about America, and the girl said she couldn't imagine using the bathroom in her drinking water. But we live in a place where that's normal. That's, that's our drinking water and our toilet water comes from the same pipe into our house. In spite of the fact that we virtually have universally accessible drinking water, the reality is water is a scarce resource. More than 97% of the total water on the planet is salt water. We can't drink it. About 2.5% is fresh water, and only a tiny fraction of that is accessible to us. Most of it's locked up in glaciers or found in groundwater that we don't have access to. We're blessed to live in a land where we live that's got lakes and streams of plenty. But that's not the case in Jeremiah's land. It's not the case in the Middle East as a whole. Water was a scarcity. People fought and killed over water. That's why when you read the Old Testament story during Exodus, the, the wilderness wanderings, that the Israelites' faith was truly tested when water was scarce. That was one of the greatest faith challenges they had is when they didn't have access to water. And when God offered streams of water, and particularly in Jeremiah when he offered streams of living water, he got people's attention because they knew how scarce it was as a resource. And so God looks at them, and dealing with this topic of water, he says that they committed two evils. The first evil, he says, is that they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. This means that they have given up on God. They have given up on the Lord. And the water analogy is important because they have access to a fountain that never, ever runs dry. And in a land that's arid where water is scarce, if you offer someone a fountain that never runs dry, you never have to worry about having something to drink or watering your flocks. You never have to worry about it. Well, you'd be a fool to leave behind such an offering. You'd be a fool to turn your back on such a gift. If you've ever watched any of those Survivor shows on TV, they're fake, I know, but they're still fun to watch. The first thing they always have to do is what? Find water. Got to find water. 
And if they can't find it, then the camera crew will give it to them. But they got to find water. They got to find something to drink. Because finding water is literally a lifesaver. But if you turn your back on the spring that doesn't run dry, guess what you still have to do? You still have to go find water. You still have to go find water. And what did Israel do? We're told in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 18. This is crazy. They had access to living water, Jeremiah 2, 18. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? They had access to a living water, a spring that never runs dry, but Israel is going to Egypt to drink from the Nile, and they're going to, to Assyria to drink from the Euphrates. But instead of trusting in the Lord to provide what they needed, they're trusting in their political alliances. They're not trusting in God who can provide. They're trusting in Pharaoh and the king of Assyria to meet their needs. But God is clear. He says in chapter 2, verse 36, how much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt as you were put to shame by Assyria. They turn their back on God the one who had provided for them, cared for them, sustained them, protected them, met their needs. They turned their back on God, and they tried to find protection and provision and care in their political alliances. But history, and in this case prophecy, demonstrated that those political alliances were completely inadequate to the task. Again, I don't think it's a stretch here to caution us today to be wary of the political alliances that we hitch ourselves to. I wonder if the Lord could look at his church today and say something similar. To the church today, could he look at us and say, they have forsaken the fountain of living water and they've gone to share drinks with the Republicans or the Democrats? Could it be that the Lord even looks at us today and says, you will be put to shame by the Republicans as you were put to shame by the Democrats? I don't think it's a stretch. We like to associate perhaps too closely. Now we understand in a binary system, we're forced to choose the lesser of two evils. But we'd better be very careful of aligning ourselves too closely with an organization that doesn't first and foremost declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because our allegiance is first and foremost to King Jesus, not to some politician or political party. Israel turned their back on the living water offered by the Lord. But guess what? You still got to have water. You still got to have something to drink. The political alliances weren't going to work. Drinking from the Nile or the Euphrates weren't going to work. So what are we going to do? We can't, those aren't going to save us. We've turned our back on the Lord. What are we going to do? Well, that's the second evil. The Lord says that they dug broken cisterns. They dug cisterns that could not hold water. A cistern's primary task is to hold water. And if a cistern can't hold water, then it is useless. It is not good for anything. But God's people, he says here, they turned their back on the offer of living water and they attempted to dig cisterns that wouldn't hold water. And if it won't hold water, it's completely useless. It's not good for anything. It's a waste of resources, both human and material. And it was a source of false hope. The first 
evil? Was Israel's attempt to abandon the Lord to pursue the dangerous alliances of politics? But the second evil was Israel's attempt to replace the Lord with the false gods of the nations. And again, God's a, a, a making a powerful a, a argument here in this, in this accusation. And he says it very clearly down in verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bow down like a whore. It's even more clearly in verse 26. He says, as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a rock, you gave me birth. For they have turned their backs on me, not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. Listen to this. God says, where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise. And if they can save you in your time of trouble, for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Her politics were broken, and her faithfulness to the true God was shattered. I was trying to think of a contemporary example of what this might look for us today. And imagine if you would a bank, a financial institution, that offered for you unlimited withdrawals. <laughs> Sign me up. But they require that you would give your absolute allegiance to the bank and that you agree to follow a certain set of expectations about how you spent the money. Okay, I'm interested, but I'd like to see the fine print. Imagine, though, this other bank over here also promised unlimited withdrawals, but they had no requirements about how you spent the money and no expectations of allegiance. So I like that contract better. That fine print's easier to read. I'm going to go with the other bank that's making me these promises with no requirements. Of course, we're inclined to go to that second bank until you go to the ATM and realize that there's not any real money in the ATM. It prints out IOUs. You go into the teller, and the teller says, hey, guess what? We're fresh out of cash, and the printer's broken. You attempt to go online and transfer money because that's the way of the 21st century, and you find out that their website's down, and they don't actually have the means to transfer anything. You'd leave that bank, and you'd say what? It's bankrupt. It's full of promises, but it can never, ever deliver on those promises. And that is what idolatry looks like. Whatever idol you pursue, whether it's sex or addictions or possessions or persons, idols will promise you the stars, but you will find that they don't even own a telescope. You will invest your very soul in the pursuit of empty, dead idols, and the return on investment is nil. You're, inside, you're certainly entitled to go that way, but why in the world would you? Why invest the effort in digging a, a cistern and building a cistern that can't hold water when God says there's a fresh fountain bubbling up, inviting you to drink and splash and be refreshed? We get to the New Testament, and we find that this idea of living water is something that Jesus adopts for himself. In John chapter 4, we run into a familiar story. The woman at the well, Jesus interacting with this woman. She was a Samaritan woman, and 
She approaches and Jesus is waiting at the well and he asks her for something to drink, which is completely unusual because Jews didn't talk to Samaritans like that. A Jewish man certainly wouldn't talk to a Samaritan woman. She's completely caught off guard because of this interaction and he asks her for something to drink and she says, why are you asking me? And Jesus said to her in verse 10 of John chapter four, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will or who, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In Christ, church, we have access to the fountain of living water that never runs dry. And when we drink, we find that it's satisfying and that it's good for us. But how often do we do what Israel did? We turn our back. We, we turn from the Lord and not our faces instead of turning to the Lord as we look for some other spring. wonder today what cisterns you have dug in your life. Cisterns that don't hold water. They're full of promises, but they're completely empty because they don't contain living water. What cisterns have you dug in your life? They're easy to identify, but they're tough to eliminate. Maybe pornography is a cistern for you. You pour your heart and soul out in that old busted cistern, but you know it will never hold water, but still you keep on pouring. Maybe your wealth is a cistern for you. You keep on pouring your treasure into that cistern, and what happens? The stock market crashes, the financial bubble bursts, and you never quite feel like you've got enough because a cistern is only designed to link. Maybe your career is a cistern for you. You pour your time into that cistern, and what happens? You get overlooked for the promotion. You go as far as your education will allow. You compromise your virtue to get to the next level. That cistern doesn't do anything but leak. But there is one source of water that never runs dry. And interestingly enough, it's even affirmed for us at the end of all things. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will what? He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In Christ, we have the promise of drinking from and bathing in living water forever and ever and ever. Why would we ever reject the offer of living water for all these other things that always come up short. Maybe today that's a question for you to ask the Lord. Lord, help me to see the cisterns in my life that are empty and dry, that keep, I keep pouring into, that I keep investing in, that completely and always come up short. And today maybe it's time to turn to the offer of living water given to us by Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the words of Jeremiah the prophet 
and for the truth with which he speaks, for the clarity with which he speaks. Thank you, Lord, for the offer of living water that's given to us in Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge today how often how often we want to pour ourselves into other things, how often other things demand our attention. But Lord, all these other things that call out to us, that, that distract us from you, they are simply broken cisterns that don't hold water. There's only one source of living water, and it is Christ. Lord, I pray today that if there's any in this room that, that maybe they're trying to drink from other fountains. They're drinking from wealth and power, and they're drinking from popularity. They're drinking from the affirmation of their peers. They're drinking from the affection of their spouse. They're drinking from the, uh, all these other things. And some of those things aren't bad, but they find they're always wanting because they've never reached out for living water that's found in Christ. Lord, you are the only one who provides us the water that allow us to never thirst again. May we come to you and drink freely, knowing that you will provide for us all of our needs. May our desire be for you and all those other things that we need will be added unto us as we seek you first. And thank you, Lord, for the promise that in heaven there will be a source of living water that never runs out as we live forever and ever with you. If there's any here today that don't have that relationship with you, then I pray that today would be the day that they would submit and surrender themselves to Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.